The trajectory of multinational corporate technology in this world, if it's allowed <clears throat> to continue without challenge, without countervailing alternatives, the trajectory is omnicide. It's omnicide. It's just like the, way, the, the big whaling ships. The only time they will stop is when there are no longer any whales. You know, they're not giving us the good news. They're not giving us the innovation. They're not giving us the solutions that are on the shelf with only a very few people and companies trying to get them off the shelf and into improving our daily lives and our ability to turn this planet over to future generations with our head held high rather than to be seen by future generations as as perhaps the last generation that had to give up so little in terms of sacrifice in order to achieve so much. This is The Inheritance Project. This is more audio of Ralph Nader speaking at the Solar Living Institute's annual SoulFest Festival in 2000 in Hoplin, California. In the last episode, we heard how John used one of the first direct public offerings to raise funds to start the building of the Stream Project, a place that he had been envisioning for many years that would be entirely self-sufficient in every way, a place to put his ideals and alternative technologies on display. But where would he find a place to build it, and how would he design it? Operations manager at the time had driven by, he lived in Berkeley, and he'd drive by Hopland all the time, and he mm. said, yeah, there's this great place for sale, it's, it's cheap, it's, it's, abandoned. it's an abandoned waste site for Caltrans highway dumping, and you know, you should check it out. So um, we ended up, very, we got it for like $100,000, and he took most of it in stock, so wow. we got it for nothing, and we hired, um, we looked out for an architect, <coughs> we had a competition where we wrote up a vision statement saying what it had to demonstrate and how it had to be a parallel universe. You come off the highway and see how lush the gardens can be and how all the different kinds of energy can work. And, you know, it was this grandiose, beautiful vision of utopia. And um, we had three really good architects. Um, this guy, Obi Bowman, who had done Sea Ranch, mm-hmm. he bid on it. And then this crazy guy, Eugene Sway, from uh, the Bay Area came up and he had like hydrogen pipes running along the highway and big waterfalls you'd have to walk through to get in that was powered by the hydrogen and pumped from underground. Wow. And it was some very, very far out designs. And he, his was the one I liked the most, but practically speaking, it would have cost was, millions and millions. Was, yeah. So Sim Vanderein, who used to be the, <clears throat> the state architect for the California when Jerry Brown was governor yeah. the first time, got the winning bid and we started working on that in and we we had allocated three million dollars from the public offering to build this and he started building that i guess it was in 94. they started with the landscaping and as he writes in his book a place in the sun landscaping is what you focus on at the end of the project usually when you've already run out of money but they wanted the institute to be incorporated first and foremost into the land and they found Stephanie Coton and Christopher Tebbett to help them. And uh, we had found Chris and Stephanie Tebbett from Boonville, still over there with Filigreen Farms. <laughs> they did all the landscaping. They'd worked for the Queen of England. At, I know, I read that. Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace, yeah. huh? 
<laughs> yeah, really interesting people. <clears throat> they did the master plan for the landscape. And then we had a design team of all kinds of amazing and, and far out people. And I remember the contractor was kind of a straight, good old boy, Ukiah guy, Tom Myers. And um, he, I, after six months on the job, he said, God, this renewable energy, this recycling stuff really works. The sustainability stuff, I didn't think it would work. And he was, he was impressed. And they designed living structures that would serve not only as a beautiful design aspect, but also serve a purpose. They designed agave cooling towers that would line walkways to shade guests on hot summer days. A tree-sculpted fountain and other shading devices for visitors, including a hops teepee made of hops and olive branches. A kiwi tunnel. Streams that harnessed their own energy led to ponds and fountains that fed off their flow and a large central sundial in the front courtyard to track the hours and months that passed. The structure would be mostly made of hay bales and concrete, positioned just perfectly in a crescent shape to naturally cool the building in the summer and retain the heat of the sun in the winter. David Arking was brought in to be a project architect. He specialized in ecological planning and design. A structural engineer who was initially skeptical that you could build a large commercial building from straw bales, Bruce King, came on board and now is widely recognized as a specialist in environmental building techniques. The power and climate response systems were built by Jeff Oldham and Adam Jackaway and incorporated wind, water, and solar energy to completely take them off the grid. And above all else, they wanted to know how much this would cost, not just in hard dollars, but also in emissions. So every employee was asked to log their drive-in and drive-out in order to find the true ecological cost of building this oasis. We had one requirement was that anyone who worked on site and commuted there, we kept intricate logs of how far they commuted, how long they were on site, so that we could see the, the final um, accumulated energy footprint right. that anyone spent to work on it. One of the, uh, one of the offshots of these... Um, shareholder of being a direct public offering is we had I don't know, several thousand shareholders and we'd have shareholder parties great yeah. parties your aunt Holly Near would uh, be playing would be singing and Jim Page would be playing music and we had uh, Dan Hamburg would be speaking and we, we had all kinds of uh, Todd McAria, we had all kinds of luminaries that would come there and people would come and camp in the woods for three days and have wow. a shareholders meeting. Lots of ideas came out of those sessions, but it was such a such a special time to uh, know that we were creating something that there was it was one of a kind in the world and there was nothing else like it. There was a place in England. Actually, Nancy and I, before we built it, we went on a, a kind of a whirlwind tour to get some ideas on how to do it. We went to this place in Wales called the Center for Appropriate Technology. Mm. We went to Ben and Jerry's. We went to the Rodale Farm in <clears throat> Pennsylvania. Went to Stonyfield Yogurt um, to, to try to get ideas for stuff to do. But we came up with something that was incorporated a lot of what we learned, but seemed even better. And it was an instant success. I mean, we had like... Uh, what was it, 200,000 visitors the first year. And then we started putting on these um, soul fests, which were uh, the solar festival. The first one we did was the grand opening in 1996. A Amory Lovins came out from Colorado and, and the executives from Greenpeace. And I think that was back when Ralph Nader was running for president. He came out and mm -hmm. Amy Goodman came and spoke. And they were 
the, probably the, the peak experience of my life was was going to those soul fests and just yeah. walking around and talking to everybody and people having the greatest time and you still run into people who got who met there and got married their kids were conceived of there and they're just like I mean, it was like a it was like a a family holiday in our yeah. family. I feel like it was like every year. It's yeah. like when was Soul Fest? Yeah, yeah. And um, to me, that kind of epitomized the, the pinnacle of what I had tried to create for all these years, which was promotion, exaltation, inspiration of all of these new technologies and appropriate ways of living, sensible ways of living all in one place where you can walk from the Cobb Hobbit hut over to the bicycle generators to the hops teepee to the agave cooling tower to the store that was made of straw bales uh, to biodiesel to the charging tank uh, to the charging stations for the electric vehicles to all the alternative structures and the hemp house and the yurts and it, it was all all there and because it was all there, we drew people from all different walks of experimentation that would come and all and want to do something. And I, I was, I always say yes. The idea of the commune almost lives on, right? It's, it's that you've also not only built this amazing place that shows all the technology is possible, but that you have brought in a larger community of people, you know, from all different walks of life, you know. Yeah, it became a real hub for, for conferences and place for people to gather, a gathering of the tribes for people with all these yeah. crazy ideas and sensible ideas at the same time. But it also, it also drew a share of wackos, as anything does. There are two types of systems generally for using the solar power created by your home. One is to have a battery for keeping the power in reserve at all times, like Tesla's Powerwall. And the other is what they call net metering, which in most states requires the electric company to buy back the power you create on your house for the same price that they sell it to you for, essentially making the local grid your power backup, and sometimes even making you a little bit of money. I think in the mid-90s, 1995, where PG, well, they first passed the net metering law in California, which said that if a utility sells electricity to you, they have to buy it back at the same rate they sell it to you for. Because before that, they would sell you electricity for 15 or 20 cents a kilowatt hour, but they had the right to buy it from you for two or three cents a kilowatt hour. So it was impossible to make it work. So I think it was like 95 or six, the first net metering law came out. And then I had probably the first residential system on my home in, in Talmadge up in, in Gideville. Right. And so that was the first step of popularizing solar was net metering. And that kind of got it on the radar, started it a little bit in houses, but not so much. And then the next thing, the, the price was prohibitive back then. Like, it, like I said, when we, the first ones we sold were $100 a watt, and it was probably down to 6 7 $8 a watt maybe in, in the mid, early 2000s. But still, if you're going to put up, uh, it was probably like $12 a watt for the whole system. So if you were going to put up a five kilowatt system, it was like $60,000. Right. And no one was going to do that. The only thing holding it back was price. And then between 2010 and 2020, the price went down from $2 a watt to $0.50 cents a watt for the wow. PV. And the PV is the most expensive part of a system. Right. I mean, we're putting up 
13 kilowatt system here that's PV is only $6,500. Wow. Ridiculous, getting ridiculously cheap. So I think it's only a matter of time before it takes over and you've got all these mandates for, you know, 2035 and 2040, getting everything from renewable energy, electric vehicles taken over, depending on what what state you look at. I mean, I first got my leasing a Tesla in 2014 because you run into some of the Tesla station and you'd be best friends because no one else had a Tesla. You talk yeah. about it. How, how do your seats move? How fast do you go at 60? Blah, blah, blah. And now it's like going to a station and it's just like at a gas station. Everyone yeah. has one. It's, things are, have developed really quickly and I think they're, they'll continue to do so. But as with any fringe industry, going mainstream changes things. The expansion and popularity of solar power also meant falling prices. It meant the attention of large corporations. It meant finding ways to upscale your production across the country, even while your margins were shrinking. So what, what revolutionized it, the second thing after net metering was, uh, I think there's a company called Sunrun that was the first offered leasing so that they, you could come in and they would uh, actually lease, buy the system for you and you would pay it back month by month. Right. Similar to what they did with, uh, with cars in the 50s, because who... People couldn't afford to buy a car, put out the twenty grand or right. ten grand, whatever it was. They had to buy it on a lease over time. So, once that happened to solar, it started to, to take off. I remember <clears throat> we were the probably the largest in the country at the time, two thousand five. We were. I don't. Know, we used to brag about how many thousands of homes we'd solarized. And then along came um, Solar City in two thousand six. That was our first big competitor, and that was. Elon Musk's two cousins. Uh, really? Yeah. Lyndon oh, wow. Rive and Peter Rive. I remember seeing them at an Eco Expo in uh, San Francisco. Or a green, what's it called? Green, green Fair, Green Expo. Anyway, all of a sudden, here's a solar city. And I thought, oh my God, Uh-oh. first time we've got a real competitor out there backed by this guy, Elon Musk, who was you know, supposedly some smart guy from South Africa. And the rumor was that they had. I'll take in mushrooms at Burning Man and come up with this idea. <laughs> so sure. They, they had some similarities to us and that they were innovative, crazy business people. And just like with the marijuana industry, these pioneers who had worked their entire lives to make their causes mainstream found themselves sometimes sidelined by the very markets that they helped create. Real Good started to expand rapidly, acquiring regional installers, including California's Marin Solar, Carlson Solar, Independent Energy Systems, and Regrid Power. And it later picked up East Coast installers like Alturus Renewables, pulling in millions of dollars in cash by 2010. With its push to scale, John stepped down as CEO in 2010. And what had been a small hippie general store was now global, and it needed a team to take it there. They rebranded as RGS Energy, thusly erasing the name that his customers knew and loved. And that's when John knew it was time to get out. He left the company for good, and in 2014, he bought back the Solar Living Institute and made it a nonprofit organization. Elon Musk's cousins formed Solar City and went public in 2012, raising $92 million. Vivint raised $330 million in 2014, and Sunrun raised $251 million in 2015. Most of these startups tried to hang on as long as possible, but many went belly up, including Solar City, that was finally bailed out and bought by Cousin Elon. 
Their business became the basis for Tesla's solar innovation that is so known across the globe. Tesla's power wall costs about $3,500, but John says that there are much more affordable systems on the market. And do you think, have you looked at these power walls and these, uh, these batteries that he's developed? Are they pretty? Yeah. I mean, we, when I was selling, um, selling batteries, we, we would call the power wall two to three times overpriced. It, it was, you're basically buying the Elon Musk brand to get the power right. wall. You could get any number of lithium ion phosphate batteries. Uh, they call them LifePo, lithium iron phosphate, which is what I have in my house. I've got 75 kilowatts of them in Hopland, and um, it does everything. The power wall does and more and costs yeah. less than half the price. Really? But, oh, but the power wall is it's pretty. It sits on your wall. Right. It says Tesla it on says it. It says Tesla. It's got Elon's name, and I'm sure he'll sell tons of them. So you think, uh, that was my next question, is that for people who don't know and you know, I think there's also still a lot of people that still think that that's that it's not as easily accessible as it is even now. You would say that there's not only the Tesla version, but there's a lot of other cheaper, kind of easy access, affordable oh, ways yeah, to. Yeah. Tesla is just one person selling solar. They when Solar City went bankrupt, he bought them out and called, called it rebranded it Tesla. I don't know right. if his nephews are still involved or not. His cousins are still involved. But um, yeah, there's there's tons of equipment out there, and the power wall or batteries, in general, are you're probably only talking less less than five percent of grid interties will even have a battery backup, because <clears throat> why not use the grid as your backup? Right. So, you know, and it, it costs typically a, a system on a house will cost roughly two dollars and fifty cents a watt for just a grid intertie with BG&E. Right. Add the batteries on and you're probably up to $4 a watt. So okay. 10 kilowatt system, you're adding like $20,000 to have a battery backup. Right. Whereas if you don't have the power going out, you, you can throw in a generator for a couple thousand dollars to, as a backup. If it's very infrequent, if it happens really frequently, or if in Hoplin like me, I'm completely off the grid with no power, then you have to have batteries. And right. It's a great feeling to know that all the lights are out on all your neighbors and you're and you're fine running now yeah taking a hot tub out there and tomorrow it's going to recharge itself exactly the tesla power pack is available for large business and factory use and in fact the tesla gigafactory in california is entirely powered by their solar power systems musk claims that 160 million power packs could power the entire us 900 million would power the entire world and if we replaced all transport, power generation, and heating on the globe, it would take 2 billion power packs. That may seem like a lot, but he argues that there are 2 billion cars and trucks on the road today, and those are remade and replaced every 10 years. Not to mention that there would be no more need for upkeeping power lines and infrastructure. Bloomberg estimates that the energy storage market will balloon to $250 billion by 2040, and there are a ton of new ideas and frontiers in our energy future. Through companies like Tesla, there are more and more electric cars on the market. And just recently, GM has announced that all its cars will be electric within the next 10 years. There is a new plan for solar canals here in California with solar panel shades on all waterways throughout the state. These panels would not only generate power, but also save water from evaporation 
and it is estimated that it would save over 63 billion gallons of water a year. In California, that's the equivalent of 50,000 acres of irrigated farmland, or the equivalent of 2 million residential yearly water needs. Someone is building a super yacht powered entirely by solar sails when there is no wind, and the Vanguard satellite, which was the first solar satellite sent into space, is still in orbit, having traveled over 6 billion miles. John is now entirely retired. And in 2019, he sold the Solar Living Institute property to an emerging local cannabis company called Flocana, before they too hit a downturn as marijuana prices fell to extremely low rates due to legalization. For John, he has gone from the dream of a commune in the country to embracing the very system he was trying to get away from. And some say that using the capitalist model and its mechanisms to promote your anti-establishment ideas is a betrayal of those values that you started with. But I think more importantly, he found that it was more valuable to engage in the systems of power already in place and to change the culture through those mechanisms than to fight against them. The real goods community changed how they did business on Wall Street. They paved the way for large corporations like Tesla to take their vision to a global scale. And he gave people capitalist jobs, but he gave them the opportunity to thrive in capitalism while still promoting their values and ideals. The tools he used were not necessarily new tools. He had in some ways used the most basic of business ideas, a general store. But he had incorporated new technologies that gave us an alternative way forward. And more importantly, he helped the community and then the country raised their expectations for the future. So I will try to remember going forward not to expect less, but to appreciate more the years of work that have gone into what we have now. To hope that I work that hard on something someday. And although I hope we keep our expectations of change high, I will remind myself that change is hard and sometimes slow. And maybe someday when we look back, someone will take for granted the work that we spent our lives on. And if we're lucky, they will only see where we have failed to live up to their even higher expectations. We have to raise our level of expectation. The principal controlling process in the history of the world, whether it's done by brute force, propaganda, Orwellian language, whatever, is to control people's expectation level. And if you control them, you control their behavior, you engage them in passivity, surrender, uh, you can't fight city hall, que sera, sera type mentality. Raise the expectation level, become your own personal ambassador to your own widening circle of friends and neighbors, co-workers uh, and acquaintances and relatives and move it out. You come up against them, You will prevail, just like so many people in our history, up against enormous odds. Fighting slavery, women's right to vote, trade union movement, populist progressive revolt 100 years ago that swept the country and gave us the biggest political reform, the civil rights, women's rights, civil liberties, consumer, environmental, disability rights, gay, lesbian rights movements. Think of the uphill fight, you see, and you've got to think of it in terms in terms of bringing the best in your mind together. 
I'd like to thank John Schaefer for talking with me, and special thanks to Maria Gallardin at TUC Radio for helping us get Ralph Nader's audio. See you next time.